0: Hi and welcome to Decoding AQ, helping you to learn the tools, mindsets, and actions to thrive in an ever-changing world. Hi, listeners. Welcome back to our next episode of Decoding AQ. I have Anna Tavis with me today. She is an academic director. She's lectured at countless universities around the world, and her current home is NYU. And it's a real pleasure to have you with us today.
1: Thank you so much, Ross. Delighted to be here.
0: So we had an opportunity just before uh, hitting the record button to have a bit of conversation and and chat, and it's been fascinating just to, to understand and think about the world that we're living in right now, how much it's changed, and what even just a few months ago we thought might be our future for the year, and we make our plans, we do our New Year's resolution, and we have a vision for that year, and everyone's now facing an entirely different world different world of work, of those sorts of things. Tell me about your experience of the last few months as a lecturer and somebody who learning is a key part of their life and has been in passion. How have you uh, had that experience? What's changed for you and how are you feeling about that?
1: Um, I will start where I am to kind of situate myself geographically. So um, New York University is the largest uh, private university in the U.S. We have uh, 13 global campuses, interestingly enough, and, um, uh, and what we needed to do is to take that huge organization with uh, about um, 25,000 and maybe more employees and, and 50,000 students and turn it around and, and go virtual overnight. It doesn't mean that we were not moving in that direction one way or the other. Uh, we are a very innovative entrepreneurial school, and we've always, uh, we hosted a lot of ed tech events. We have our own innovation lab. We have lots of researchers working on the future of learning, et cetera. So all of that uh, has been in place, but the majority of the school was business as usual, um, academically talking about disruption, but really not living it in a sense that we had to experience when um, the COVID um, pandemic hit and uh, the decision was made literally overnight to not go uh, to the classes, evacuate our students. Um, so there was a big kind of logistical undertaking that needed to take place and, um, and then we found ourselves all on the other side of the screen uh, looking at our students who might have been then dispersed around the world and and, and trying to continue business as usual. So lots of um, adjustments. The one thing I want to say, and and I would love to spend more time reflecting on the future and the solutions that we are finding in this kind of um, crisis uh, that New York is um, somewhat more used to it than most, most places. Um, you know, dating back to September 11th, um, you know, mm-hmm. we're located in downtown Manhattan, our main campus, and so we've been very affected by all, all of the three sort of major um, uh, disasters disruptions that occurred in this century alone. Um, so in that sense, we're probably uh, one of the most prepared schools in, yep. um, in the U.S. However, the uncertainty of the, of the length of this type of disruption, the uncertainty of the solutions that we are going to have to come up with uh, creates um, an additional uh, level of complexity in how we're looking at moving forward.
0: It's interesting, isn't it? Because I'm sure many were in similar situations where, um, whether they were educational institutions, corporates, whoever they may be about an ambition to change. At some point, we want to go virtual, we want to leverage digital, we want to do these things. And that was kind of a burning ambition, but it doesn't necessarily catalyze and crystallize. It changes in the moment of now the same way a burning platform does. You know, And this catalyst event has suddenly said, it's not a nice to have, it's a necessity of survival. And I think that invokes such a rallying of people to take on new things, to go into the uncertain, to say, okay, we don't have all the answers yet, but we, we need to figure it out. We'll virtualize, we have to close off. What's been some of the challenges um, for you in terms of things that have gone better than you thought they would, or maybe things that you thought, actually, um, that wasn't as good as I did expect it to in terms of dealing with your students and dealing with such a complex ecosystem of NYU in delivering, um, you know, better, not necessarily even just the same, it's different. Give us an idea of, of, of that experience.
1: First of all, Ross, I want to say that we're somewhat in, in a somewhat asymmetrical situation in, in higher ed. We have and we're a very selective um, um, institution. It was very hard school to get into. Um, we actually found that the student side of this change was much more agile, much more adaptable. Our students were very used to technology. They are online all the time. And so so there was sort of a flipping of the classroom in a different sense, that it was the professors who needed to be updated, who needed to be uh, handheld to understand how to translate what they effectively could do in a classroom. To do the same thing in the class in a, in a uh, virtual um, setting, uh, but the students and oftentimes, and I, as a department chair uh, for human capital management, I um, dropped in and into quite a few classes just to mm-hmm. see how um, how our faculty were doing. And what I found myself it, it was the students who were teaching the faculty to be actually operating the system. So it was it was absolutely. Um, uh, fascinating to watch uh, this kind of reversal of roles, and 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 the, the, the next generations are really helping us along to make that um, you know phenomenal 180. And, and I think that's what accounted for um, a fairly a fairly um, fast and uh, fairly smooth transition that we've experienced. Um, and, and that was because, um, because the students were very helpful and, and uh, very accommodating and collaborating in this, um, in this type of uh, disruption.
0: I, I think you picked up on a couple of really interesting parts there in terms of how accommodating and how important it is for a team to work as a team. And uh, the traditional kind of model of learning is the student is there as the student. And the lecturer is there as the lecturer you know and the knowledge of exchange goes accordingly whereas such a big event that relationship opportunity for students to not say well you should have all the answers but to turn up as a in service as team support to enable you know a change because it was requiring unlearning for the professors they had all the things in place of how they delivered. What they did, they had certainty, they had knowledge. When they then enter that they have to learn, that's a vulnerable state um, for somebody to now say, you know, I don't have the answers. So you need somebody to come along and say, I'll support that. What a wonderful story that the the students, um, you know, rallied to that and the professors uh, embraced it. Uh, that That's... Uh, you know certainly from our view of adaptability the environmental situation has such a big impact on adaptability success that it you know whether it's stress inducing anxiety inducing or it's morale boosting and encouraging uh, of those things in terms of um as a whole organization that 180 shift uh, that was done you mentioned as an area, you'd almost become prepared because you'd had other tragic events that almost built up the muscle of, you know, things can change quickly and you build confidence because you overcame those others. Where uh, do you think it has worked so well? Uh, You talked there about the students. What other things has helped you to uh, engage and still deliver value um, in terms of such a large organization? It must have been difficult to rally across that volume. You know, what's, what's something that maybe a large organization could um, learn from in the way in which you maybe rolled that out or communicated it or some of the challenges you, you addressed early on?
1: Um, I'm sure you write a lot about it, Ross, yourself, it it really, it's a cultural phenomenon more than anything else. I think despite the fact that there are some scaffolding built into the institutional roles, et cetera, et cetera, when it comes to these types of events, um, it's really leadership, it's, uh, initiative, it's entrepreneurial sort of spirit, uh, problem solving mindset that takes precedent over, uh, whatever the roles are uh, traditionally in, in any organization, so I feel that this kind of the ability to live with in the moment to uh, you know to scramble the, the kind of traditional architecture, the lines of um, accountability, other lines, the reporting lines, and and just whoever has the best idea. Uh, go with it it's kind of an um, indicative of how our classrooms are beginning to uh, to be run where it's not to your point it's not the teacher who has all the answers but it's a collaborative effort where the teacher is more of a coach um, same thing happened here we needed to solve for issues for problems for assist those i was really overwhelmed and impressed with how um, this assistance across peer-to-peer assistance uh, occurred where people were reaching out to each other, making sure everyone was comfortable, everyone was in place. And um, yeah, we, um, unfortunately we did lose some faculty to the, to the disease um, and how the organization handled that with uh, full respect and, and um, empathy. Uh, the same thing to our students who found ourselves. A lot of them, as you know, students in in the U.S. They travel far from their homes, and mm-hmm. some of them got trapped in in uh, you know one-bedroom or studio apartments in Manhattan without being able to leave um, their homes for for days. Um, and and you know and how this culture came through. Um, not in the content that we taught, but obviously in the discussions, every class was about reconnecting, making sure everyone was safe, et cetera. And, um, and so, and even across our campuses, you know, I've done quite a bit of work in Abu Dhabi. We have a big campus in Abu Dhabi and just connecting with people in Abu Dhabi thinking, because they're also on the lockdown and have been there for a while, um, you know, making sure that, you know, whatever they're doing, if we could be of help from here uh, with um, some technologies, with some solutions that we came up with. So um, I think, you know, to sum it all up, I think it's in the culture of collaboration that in the moment of stress, in the moment of uh, tragedy, um, everyone matters. People step up, people reach out, and it's truly, even though I know there's been a lot of discussion societally about we are all in it together, I think on campus it is. Yes. Um, and we don't see what's really, we are very, very proud of on campus in our university community. We do not, we, we are very sensitive to racial and minority mm-hmm. issues And we're going out of our way to embrace all members of our community um, at the same level. So um, I think you're going to see that subcultures emerging that are more uh, resilient, um, that are more adaptable, and that has to be built year after year, regardless of, um, you know, the moment. It cannot just be created at the time of the moment of truth, right?
0: Yeah, it's moments like this, you know, it's uh, sailors, you know, good sailors are made in the storms, you know, and we have an opportunity here. And I think leadership specifically, many organizations are facing the challenge of some leadership now needed to be instructional because there's a crisis. It's no, we're going virtual. We need decisive actions and other areas where we need to be human and we need to you know, be collaborative and engage and be open to experimentation. To experiment means you don't know the result, so that you have to be willing to fail in that. So you need a culture of psychological safety and all of those things to kind of exist. So when you're heightened and it's stressful and it's crisis, with great leadership and direction, plus experimentation, great things can happen um, in, in those environments. In terms of you know, these skills that you've been nurturing and that you're seeing inside the faculty and seeing inside the students, what things could you see? You know, you, you talk a lot about, you know, your area of study of the future, the future of HR, the future of work. And even I think the the title of your book that you're working on at the moment, sort of a working title of the end of talent management as we know it. Right. Talk to Talk to us a little bit about Um, what now is preparing us for the types of future? What vision do you have of the future, both of learning and of work?
1: Okay, that's a really, uh, a deep question, Ross. Very, um, so let me just um, take you back. I've been working, now I I have to make a pivot a little bit in my writing. Um, But my thesis all along, I kind of came into the profession, into the HR world, because I was an academic, then I took a long sabbatical to work in the business. Um, and was fortunate enough to work in Europe for uh, the majority of my career and then ended up coming back to the US and um, uh, worked on Wall Street right at the time of the financial crisis. So this is not new to me in many ways. And um, and I came to the profession when the whole talent management um, revolution started. And it started with the McKinsey um are doing their research, if you recall, about who really matters in their organization. And their, their thesis was, it's really the 10%. It's the 10% of Pareto principle. It's the 10% of the high-performing, high-potential people who are going to be delivering 80% of the value uh, to
0: your organization. And what happened... And cut the, and cut the bottom. You know, he created a culture that... Exactly. And it was was Jack Welch. Yep. Jack Welch with his
1: practices of 10% uh, out every year. Yep. Um, And I actually lived that because I was involved in the McKinsey study and then then, uh, was involved in crafting and implementing this whole talent management system, um, which somewhere right around the financial crisis... And a little before, um, I started questioning really seriously, having worked in the organization, because it's not about the 10%. What I saw is by focusing on 10%, by over-investing in 10%, percent you were creating an entitled population of executives. They are all speaking about bias and diversity in companies. They are all pretty much looking the same because the people who are making those choices, and that was pre-kind of... um, uh, 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 pre um, the bias kind of awareness yes. of the bias yeah. in the system they
0: were all inside the bubble they couldn't exactly. see exactly they, they had the pursuit of growth the intention of performance but couldn't yep. see the consequence outside of the circle
1: exactly yeah. and then and then gradually right around that time was when we started more focusing on uh, analytics and, and measurement, which I know you are co- committed to as well, I think it's really, really critical. When we started looking at the data, the data were telling us that it, it's not working. We are really disengaging the 80% of the population who early on in the process do not get into that 10% track that starts pretty pretty early in your career in a company. And so we ended up, again, in, in this kind of asymmetrical structure where the whole almost of the HR, with this whole trend in the talent management, et cetera, was about you know, uh, the, the, the uh, elite 10% of executives, um, who then they became executives and promoted people like themselves, etc. And I participated in that. I helped put it together. And so, so right around that time after the uh, financial crisis, um, it just became very clear to me that it's about, it is about a hundred percent. And it is about how do we actually refocus on employee experience and with an intention and philosophy that everyone matters, that we don't leave people out there just because they don't fit the model. And, um, and 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 uh, and the way I'm trying to make it more systemic and science based is that you know I'm I'm embracing analytics and new technology that are harvesting the data on people and we can actually see a lot closer in a much more nuanced way what performance represents and with the technologies available to us again not not that we just get the insights about what's going on, what the sentiment of the place is, but also we have the delivery uh, mechanisms through digitization of the, of, of the um, uh, business. Um, uh, services that are much more customized and yeah. personalized to everyone by that we are really allowing everyone to be the success, the success they want to be and they could be. So that's kind of the main point for me and I think the epidemic has confirmed and and I just need to, you know, from uh, problem solving every day to really focus and 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 reflecting on what we are experiencing and it really confirms my point that talent management as we created it as we ran our HR structures for everyone, all the organizations have had it and they still have them and their legacy structures do not work. In fact, they are harmful to, and they're one of the reasons we are right now um, in a crisis in, in some ways in, um, in the corporate world as well. And we need to shift gears and transition to really caring about employee experience rather than identifying the elite, uh, talent cohort. Yeah.
0: I, I, you know, it fills me with light joy and energy to hear, um, someone who, uh, didn't read about the experiences of, you know, the elite, um, and you know, the approach of HR, the 10%, all of those things and say, that's not how I would like the future to be. I want it to change you lived it and then were able to reflect and look at a recreation and a future where every person has hope, has optimism that tomorrow is gonna to be better than today. That's the kind of world I wanna live in. That's the world I wanna create for my family and in work shouldn't be any different. And where this, you know, pursuit versus expansion, you know, gap versus gain, you know, that you are already enough but you could be more if you would like to, and we'll help you to do that. And I, I think that's a, both a philosophical viewpoint, but I think now, as you mentioned the data, we can see the evidence of the outcomes of it. Reminds me, I, I love films, and it reminds me of Moneyball. I don't know if you yes. uh, remember yes. the film. Yes, Uh, For those who haven't uh, seen it, watch it. It's a baseball true story and it's about looking at the data and numbers. So you might have these maverick heroes that are paid all the big bucks uh, that you think that's why a team performs and wins. This is a true story of where looking at the data, looking at the statistics and putting people in positions and places according to the statistics to allow them to flourish, to allow them to surprise, to perform and amazing things can happen. So I see no different in terms of this future opportunity we have to create the work environments where no one's left behind. That's why we exist. Uh, you know during all of this massive transition of reskilling of you know there's still always going to be upskilling but a massive reskilling of society and this opportunity of of management versus development is it control or is it in service of and I, I'm I'm fascinated by how is this, um, from your philosophy and viewpoints, is that what's happening inside universities and students? Are we preparing them to create core environments and jobs and world, um, work that is going to be better by design? Or... Uh, has that not got into the youth yet in terms of how HR should function, what human capital means and what uh, data can be? I'm interested in the. you've seen it in corporate, your, your writing and your view and philosophy is this, is that's what's happening inside our education system? Um, I'm, I'm fascinated to know.
1: So I, one thing I want to tell you is that I am doing it. Um, you know, I am the department chair now, and I'm looking, and this is, I think, also a very strategic move from yeah. of me having lived through, um, you know, when I was an academic um, and just writing about these things and doing research, um, it, it, I, I didn't get the kind of the, 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 the feedback from the actual work that uh, was being done in the system. That's why I left. I just left tenure. I left everything and I spent 15 years in the business. So returning to academia Mm -hmm. is also a strategic move for me because I do feel that that's the future. This is how I can have most impact. Yes, I can can tweak things around in, in a corporate setting and I've seen it. Uh, but the most and the broadest impact I can have is if I can change the way we teach, them, change the philosophy uh, that we um, promote um, to the next generation professionals that are coming in. And uh, so since I've taken my um, four years ago, I, 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 returned, I, I returned to NYU, I am fully fully redesigning what the professional education of the future HR leaders looks like. Uh, we have put in, and it's the first one, uh, I think, mm-hmm. at least in the United States, uh, a special program that's focused exclusively on uh, the analytics and technology in uh, people management, um, which is, I think, a very fundamental and important um, um, uh, change from where we were before. You know, the 20th century was about psychology. The 21st century is about evidence, and we can get that evidence from neuroscience. We can get that evidence from so- social sciences of various kinds, from economics, etc. because HR is a practice, and the practice is a very eclectic um, kind of position to be in, and I, and I think that The reason we were where we were, and we're talking now about people management and people management philosophies um, in the 20th century is because it was primarily driven by psychology, which was uh, focused on an individual that was focused on uh, a certain the you know, orthodoxy of uh, how to see a personality, et cetera, yeah, et cetera.
0: How to categorize, I, exactly, put them in boxes so that we knew exactly. how to understand and deal with
1: and, it. Uh, and I see it because I hang out with, with, with my um, psychology friends as well, but I see the 21st century as a much more um, adaptive space where you are taking knowledge uh, from everywhere, but most importantly, you work with data. And and not that data cannot be biased. And we have a special class that I introduced, which, which is called algorithmic responsibility. And I'm not even just calling about ethics, talking about ethics, just let's look at it again as an abstract exercise in what's right and what's wrong. But I'm making it actionable. And I'm saying, this is a responsibility. Let's learn about what responsibility means and And so, for me, foundationally what 's different in how we need to run companies, for example, and in society at large, I want to see this in the in the government I am are just really distraught by uh, how we are ma- manage right now um, as opposed to what we are you know teaching our students how to manage in organizations so foundations in in, in data uh, in fluidity with technology ability to bring in those new tools um, uh, to be more accessible to um, broaden your outreach to um, you know have the equity that we need um, Uh, That might not be available to, you know, for everyone. Why not, you know, make NYU best NYU education, for example, available to people around the world. And, um, and we are doing this, we are, you know, we are working on it. So, um, so to me, it's this kind of infrastructural issues right now that are, um, that are really, really important to be able to scale the philosophy that I have developed by you know, hard work inside organizations.
0: I think it's fascinating and it's a, you know, we go through phases of society and our race to correct before and create better tomorrow, you know, so the, the drivers from psychology was because of what came before it. And we, we are expanding our understanding to create worlds in which we want to be in, you know, a, a vision of the future that I'd like to live in one of the challenges i'd i'd love to know your your thoughts on around data in this we are facing a future where there's going to be so much data so much information from every source you know i wear a an aura ring that measures everything from my breathing rate to skin temperature to my heart rate variability and recovery and it gives me each morning a a readiness score based on all these things, you know? So I go, okay, am I going to have a good day or not? Because this data's told me it. And then sometimes it, you know, I think, oh, I woke up, had a terrible night's sleep, Check my app and it says, no, you didn't. You had a great night's sleep. So it changes my behavior. Asking the right questions to find the data and then knowing what's noise and signal, I think is a real challenging future that, humanity is going to have. And I want to just share a quick story, and I'm sure you know it, it's a famous one about planes in, during the World War, and they were coming back and looking at the data to find where should they put more armor, where should they put more reinforcements on the planes to ensure more comeback. And they'd look at them, look at them and go, oh, this is where all of the uh, holes are in in the plane, they're on the wings, they're here, let's reinforce those, reinforce those. And someone came along and said, we're not looking or asking the right questions here. The planes that we're looking at to look at the data are the ones that made it back. The ones that didn't make it back, that's the ones where we need to reinforce. So everywhere there's a current hole, we know the plane can make it back with a hole there. Where there's no holes, that's where we need to reinforce because those are the ones that you know, uh, fell in the sea. So it's really interesting this, you know ah oh, we need data, we need data. The challenges I've seen in organizations is how to ask the right questions in the first place and then how to make sure we understand what is noise and what is signal. What's your view on that and uh, how's that a component that balances academic learning and philosophy of, of questioning?
1: I think you put your finger on the, on the issue here. It's not about data, it's really about insights and and, and it's about um, action afterward. I mean, the, 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 the uh, uh, continuum that I see is um, there's a phenomenon out there. There's an, it, you know, there's an issue that we want to explore. Uh, and, and, and so we collect all sorts of data analytics uh, that I, by that, I don't mean just um, quantitative stuff because the, 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 the point now is that we're beginning to get so sophisticated in the tools, as you were talking about your ring, that we can get all sorts of data, yeah. uh, including uh, qualitative data, um, you know, natural language processing data. Um, it, it's just communicating all this wealth of um, evidence. Um, I, that's why data may be a little bit more, um, uh, you know, narrow. To uh, but I want to use the word evidence. Mm-hmm. So. This is where the are very different, and you talk about it. I looked at uh, your writing as well. Um, Very different cognitive skills that need to be developed. It's about pattern recognition, about critical thinking. It's the um, ability to um, uh, look outside the box and see the bigger picture. And this is where I believe the humans are at this point are really uniquely um, positioned in, at that final stage, not um, in, in the first, in the, in the, from the get-go, I mean, what it is that we need to look at, what, where, where do we need to see data, to, you know, what are the patterns, and, and even technology and, and I can now identify those patterns and present various scenarios for us, and then um, the the actual um, acting on it, understanding what the insights, what the meaning is, and, and then multiple ways in which it can impact the reality we live in, that's the hardest part of it. Yeah. But what's important to us, and that was absent in the kind of 20th century, the majority of 20th century decision making, is um, we relied on intuition that was narrow. I don't dismiss intuition as very important, but it's a narrow set of data that conditioned us to think a certain way uh, to a much, much broader um, base of um, evidence gathered. Yeah. And, um, and, and it requires very, very sharp, critical thinking and ability to see through this. And I see this as the primary goal for the education you know not so much to communicate content to our students because i can just put them in front of this is where online learning works you know you there are some entertaining um uh videos you can set in you can learn everything python r whatever you want to learn sql uh, that, uh, coding that our students are learning but bringing them into the classroom and talking about this expansive way of thinking about data, the patterns that they uh, discern, and then and then thinking really deeply about the implications, the policy implications, the actions they want to take, the processes they want to develop, etc. And that's where and that's where a very different set of priorities in education are uh, surfacing right now if before it was content you know the professors to your point the mm-hmm. teachers were just uh, uh, drilling the content into people now we are looking at how we develop that critical thinking skills and what we're finding and this is why the marriage is sort of quantitative qualitative arts education and uh, um and uh, more specific science education are really really helpful, and it's not just um, it's not just training people for skills we can train them for skills and put them into jobs, but where our role as the higher ed to make them leaders to make them operate in very complex environments that's a different kind of conditioning they it, need.
0: Is, it is it's where you know the shift outside of deep into being able to understand the convergence of multiple elements in complex systems and to not create the bubble of the 10% without understanding the second and third consequences uh, of those. I think there's an exciting for me future where a bit like in, in computer games and scenarios where we can put information in and start to look at scenarios of what might happen when and get better at predictive outcomes because in a world that's moving so fast, how valid that data is from one day to one week to one month away can yeah. s- can displace us. So I think the the opportunity for us to run uh, scenarios, a bit like, for example, I have friends in healthcare, and a lot of things now are happening in vitro, uh, are happening, you know, in silico in wow. terms of looking at studies of how it interacts in a virtual world much faster. Uh, you know, tens of thousands, millions of times more complexities of variables than you can in real example worlds of trials and things like that. So I think there's such an opportunity for us to augment with technology and use it that it's inert, and how we then, as the human beings, leverage it for good uh, and make sure it's not about leaving people out and behind, get rid of the bottom 10%, but being inclusive, whether that's of performance, of race, of whatever it may be. To wrap up in the, in the final uh, kind of part, we have this opportunity of creating a workplace each time there's a moment of pause. You talked about 9-11, uh, you know, a moment of pause, a financial crisis, COVID-19, where we can reflect and recreate. The workplace that you would like to see of the next five or 10 years, paint me a picture for that and then marry to that the two either tips or skills we need either within youth and education or, uh, you know, existing leaders need to obtain that future vision. So what does, it, what does that look like, the workplace, if you could create it in five or ten years' time? And if we have to map back to the things we need to take with us, the skills today to do that, what would those be?
1: So, um, I think that we are waking up with the pa- pandemic to the realization that every organization, every company is a part of the ecosystem. Um, unlike September 11th, that was kind of the tragic terrorist attack, mm-hmm. et cetera. Um, and financial crisis, that was a structural issue that was purely, you know, financial, financial markets, uh, financial services, um, have been running very risky, you know, models and uh, got everyone in trouble. So that needed to be fixed. And but it was still looked at as a kind of an isolated, isolated. very specific event that where you could put a label on it, etc. I think with the pandemic, we are realizing that you know no business is uh, on an island. No, because uh, you, you know I think we've been operating in kind of a world of interconnected silos you know, every organization was creating its own mission, putting it on the wall. And there was a lot of competition created uh, for the best place to work. You know, we kind of have created that environment of even competing for being better, etc. I think what I am seeing, and again, it's more philosophical than uh, tactical, um, is we need to learn how to be an ecosystem of um, communities where business is important, um, and, and that focus is important. Education is critical. Uh, Health care systems are important. Governments are absolutely critical to our well-being and the decisions we're going to make. And I think we are all learning the lessons of neglecting all of this, um, unfortunately, at a very, very high cost to us. The hope to, for me is that we are going to wake up and and really make very, very big decisions um, about how we're gonna move forward as a society. And, and the business has to play a huge role in it because I think we've been practicing the right things to do in individual cultures. Um, I think we've had better examples of Um, a resilience of better examples of adaptability, creativity, et cetera, at least in in our society here Mm -hmm. in the U.S. on the business side of things. Uh, And we kind of created, again, this kind of corporate elite people who work for companies and we're just you know uh changing brands and going from amazon to pepsico to you know all of these big, big companies you go to any conference ross as you know and it's the same old yeah. names that pop up all the time and i think we need to be just like with my theory of the case from the 10 10% percent to 100 that we now have to start thinking much more inclusively that what happens in an educational pipeline And not only in the elite universities that we've been looking at uh, ourselves at NYU included, but what happens downstream in educational pipeline, what happens with the climate, what happens in our communities um, that we can just isolate ourselves in in this oasis of um, wealthier neighborhoods in New York City, for example. Um, I think this is the realization that pandemic is sending, you know, making us all come to at this point, at least, at least um, you know, those of us who are on the HR side and in uh, education of the future, you know, uh, professionals um, going and leading, hopefully, organizations um, 20 and 30 years from now, I think that's where we need to focus. How do we educate um, not just civic-minded but um, globally-minded um, and skilled um, professionals who will be able to take us to the next level as a, as a, as a community rather than just advance and bring more revenue to their business.
0: Yeah, and, and the skills in terms of creating this harmonious, inclusive, you know, functioning uh, society <laughs> as opposed to this, you know, interconnected silos vision. Those skills that you talk about, what would they be in order to do that? Is it uh, that they are, you know, uh, taught the skills of, you know, non-biases? Is it a skill of inclusive? Is that a new skill that we need to teach people how to be that? Or is it things like, you know, adaptability, flexibility, you know, is it critical thinking? If you had to focus on the ones that would be most critical um, to create that future, where would that be?
1: Yeah, I think it is that critical thinking and uh, expansive thinking. You know, we're not, we've been, in our education system, we, we've been very specialized and very narrow focused and it doesn't mean that we don't have to do that, but that's not the only thing we need to do. Just to give you an example of how I am building my curricula here at, at NYU. If I'm talking about algorithms and teach people um, you know, coding languages, et cetera, et cetera, you know, then I would have a course on this algorithmic responsibility. So I will have a course that is are talking about or have an environment where people are talking about what the impact of what they're creating is, and and then from there again, not just theoretically saying, oh, you know, if you create this, you're going to exclude 80% of the population, or you will exclude certain types of people because you're programming you're you're programming a certain way. So not, no technology and no data are of bias and and that's just one example but also what actions are you going to take as a as a responsible leader who who is looking at those data and what actions you're going to take Um, so it's kind of a proactive everywhere from getting those insights understanding those meanings the ability to communicate clearly and then taking responsibility and driving action with the outcomes and impact that will have um you know, a, a, a broader uh, footprint than, um, and just again, very narrow goals of shareholder values.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a beautiful sort of summary, Anna, in terms of this view of being able to be a holistic and thinking about impact beyond the obvious, uh, being open-minded. And f- for me, fundamentally hope. You know, to, to to have hope, to have optimism that they can make a difference, um, whoever they are, to do something that um is intentionally better for many. Um and yeah. that's you know, if we can do our little bits, you know, I I, I now having had the, the, you know, real pleasure to spend some time with you, understand why you're in the Thinker's 50, you know, why you are uh, where you are, and I feel very grateful and blessed that the education system has people like you in it um, to to create a world that is going to be better than yesterday. And that's what, what we all need to do, you know, we're custodians of uh, you know, the future piece. And to be thoughtful and think in the right way is um, in everybody. It's in everybody to be able to do that um, and share it and, and question things in the right way. So it's been, yeah, real pleasure. I look forward to following more of your work. And perhaps when, uh, when we're able to travel, next time I'm in the States and in, in New York, we'll, we'll share a coffee. And uh, yes, yeah, just a real uh, deep heartfelt thank you.
1: Thank you so much, Ross. Thank you for everything you are doing as well. Thank you. We'll be in touch. Bye-bye.
0: Great. Do you have the level of adaptability to survive and thrive the rapid changes ahead? Has your resilience got more comeback than a yo-yo? Do you have the ability to unlearn in order to reskill, upskill and break through? Find out today and uncover your adaptability profile and score, your AQ. Visit aqai.io to gain your personalised report across 15 scientifically validated dimensions of adaptability. For a limited time, enter code PODCAST65 for a complimentary AQME assessment. AQAI, transforming the way people, teams and organisations navigate change. Thank you for listening to this episode of Decoding AQ. Please make sure you subscribe on your favourite podcast directory and we'd love to hear your feedback. Please do leave a review and be sure to tune in next time for more insights from our amazing guests.